you play the music, and then we'll see what happens. Yep. I'm nervous. What? I'm nervous. <laughs> you getting nervous before every show is so funny. I don't know why. It always summer. starts with you being some like, some like, fuck, oh, wait, wait, they're not there anymore, fuck. I have like a horrible feeling in my stomach. I like feel like I'm gonna throw up. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I got, I'm having the feeling that I used to get before a cross country race where I would just like start puking, but like dry heaving. Well, I'm in show business, so I don't get nervous. I'm in the shadow business. <laughs> 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 hey, where the fuck is she? This is gonna be another Peter situation. Yeah, your your nervousness before the shows is some like PA energy. Some like people, where are we? Stop making the fucking email sound. I, I don't hear it. I don't know what you're talking about. Jesus fucking Christ. Oh man, that's so like mom vibe. It's so annoying. How do I get it to stop making the email sound? <laughs> oh, fuck. What did I just do? Oh, what's fucking up? What's fucking up? Audio. Oh, no. Does it sound fucked up for you? Yeah. Oh, fuck. What did you do? That's right. Yeah, it's, it, I can hear everything. Now. Oh wait, here she comes. All right. Are you, are you ready? Yeah. All right, just do the sugar immediately. Spread the love and fly. Okay. Welcome to the Ion Pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. This is cool. Should I turn my video on? I mean, I know I'm not going to get video out of you two. <laughs> yeah, why not? Okay, cool. It's good for screenshot. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a closet. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, okay. That's, that's actually really professional. It's good for acoustics. Believe me, I know. I've, I've done... Um, so many of these work from home acting session podcast things i'm i'm getting the hang i've got my zoom mic I, I, I feel like i'm being really careerist about it <laughs> i'm doing self-taping <laughs> <laughs> i was doing self-taping um a little bit at the beginning but there hasn't been as much of it i i was doing like director sessions with a director over the past month um so that was really weird. That's cool. How many podcasts have you done? <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a hoe. Um, yeah, I feel like I've you're podcast that. queen. What did she say? I feel like you're podcast queen. I wasn't before. I had only done like a couple in my life before, but this this time I've done one, two, three. So I've like done three talking head podcasts and then I did like a narrative one that came out and I recorded another narrative one that's not going to come out for a while so I guess that's five t different podcasts holy shit so uh, like six. I said congratulations um <laughs> yeah let's talk a little bit about how this came to be big shouts to Jeremy O'Harris <laughs> how do you know Jeremy um, Jeremy and I met in a hot tub 
at Roland Emmerich's house <laughs> Same. in 2015. Um, we made out, and then yeah. I didn't, not in, not in like an authentically sexual way, just in a like, it's the 4th of July in 2015 and we're drunk kind Free of. Love. It was like yeah. a fun, it was like a fun one. Um, <laughs> and then I didn't see him again for several years. And then, um, Sam Levinson, who I worked with on Big Assassination shout. Nation, Big Shout Sam Levinson was like, oh my God, I have this friend named Jeremy. You have to meet. And I was like, Jeremy? Cool. And then I met Jeremy and it was like, oh, it's you from the hot tub. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so ever since that little reunion and I guess maybe 2017, um, we've, we've been very close. Sam Levinson, I think the last time I saw Sam was at the uh, Sundance after party. That was a wild one. <laughs> For assassination nation. Oh my god. I really thought that uh, that that was such a moment. Really I had, I had, I had never I'd never been a part of anything like that before and I was so convinced at that point that I was about to like you know, be a part of this huge movie and be like, it was going to be my big, like, breakout role. <laughs> I was like, I, I felt at that moment the sky really was the limit. And then, you know, the harsher realities of film distribution <laughs> kind of set in. Sundance does that. It's like you got Arpat, Bella, you in the building, and it's just like the world has been taken over and then months pass by and things, I don't know, like, what happened? I th <laughs> assassination nation was a little ahead of its time. I don't know. Um, I think that the distribution strategy on that film was super optimistic and aggressive. And I feel like the film did such a great job in the context of Sundance where it was a very concentrated audience of coastal film people looking for a spin and there was an appetite I think for something flamboyant and feminist and fun at that moment but I think that interfacing that with a theatrical distribution proved um, I think just like a sphinx to everybody involved in terms of how to go about it. I, I don't know what happened. It totally bombed at the box office. I, I always wonder what would have happened if um, the film had gone to like Netflix or something. I no. feel like maybe that could have Worked. delivered it to an audience, a wider audience than it had. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we had to walk so Euphoria could run. <laughs> yeah, it felt like it was going to be like the next Spring Breakers for a second. <laughs> I mean, I have to give big shouts to Sam Levinson's uh, other film, or his previous film, Another Happy Day, which I remember seeing at the festival and I loved, and then no one either really saw it or, or loved it. Um, I was young and impressionable at the time, but he's, he's, he's good. <laughs> I love that film. Um, it's that's what kind of made me really want to audition for Assassination Nation. I wonder if he's ever going to go back to that kind of indie naturalist sort of family drama. I, I I love that genre of like white upper middle class family reunion yes. turmoil. Like that's I really would. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like it's a really great backdrop to um, explore whatever you want to explore in a vacuum because there's absolutely no conflict generated by the circumstance. <laughs> so you think with Assassination Nation, people were a little lost in the sauce? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think there was some lossage in the sausage, for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's the name of this episode, it's Lost in the Sauce with Harry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're no, no one is immune to being lost in the sauce. We've all done it. I'm sure everyone listening right now, every packer is has been lost in the sauce, is probably still lost in some kind of sauce. 
We're lost in the sauce of our stupid private meme account turned semi-career. <laughs> <laughs> I've been following, I think, for a really long time. I Did I meet one of you at a Metrograph thing? Were you, like, wearing, like, a mask or, like, glasses or something? I just remember... I don't know whether it was like the person said I am the ion pack or someone like pointed and was like, that's the ion pack. And I'm like, oh my, and, and I was super wasted. And I came over and I was like, are you the ion pack? You're a mate, I don't know. I, uh, I guess you're not supposed to really tell me, but I feel like uh, I've met one of you. We're, we're all the ion pack. That may have been a decoy. Yeah, well, he certainly whatever. Was. Yeah. But he, he counts. So <laughs> we can count. say yes. Okay, we'll say yes. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know. Assassination Nation was just like a part of a bigger trend of female-led films dropped into a wide release. Like ensemble female-led girl power films that didn't really do so well in the context of a wide release. I'm, I'm trying to think of a counterpoint, but nothing really comes up. I'm just thinking about like Ghostbusters, even... Um, yeah. What 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 was it? Oceans Eight. Oceans Eight. I think it did pretty well, but probably not as well as they wanted it to, right? Yeah. Well, being yeah, I, good yeah. things can come from being lost in the sauce. That wasn't that wasn't a dig. No, not at all. I'm just sort of like, I'm thinking about it. Yeah, nothing comes to mind for me either, which I guess is an issue. <laughs> <laughs> is it really that big of an issue? <laughs> Not for us. Um, what are you looking forward to movie-wise for the summer? I don't know if there is anything to look forward to. I mean, there's a Christopher Nolan movie coming out. Right. But I'm not excited. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We have too much going on with... The Ion Pact really think about movies. <laughs> we might have to take a step back from watching movies. I, I started watching uh, Love Life last night, the TV show on HBO Max, starring the Master of Come. The Master of Come? Peter Vac, our previous guest. Oh. Our loyal friend. But yeah, it's, a, it's an Anna Kendrick HBO Max show. It's, it feels like kind of a... Uh, a reboot in the style of, of girls kind of meets Sex in the City. You, you, you kind of know what it is. It's a New York it, HBO show. Well, I, I love those sh those two shows a lot. Is it as Me good too. as those shows? Uh, I, it remains to be seen. I think Girls is personally pretty underrated or just kind of gets a bad rap for obvious reasons, but I kind of miss that type of show existing in culture. Yeah, me too. I think that girls established a precedent for a female voice and a millennial voice and kind of this tone of gritty balls to the wall naturalism that no kind of oh god here comes a word like built what is it fucking like bildungsroman like the coming of age narrative is is yeah. that what that word is fuck um i yeah, i feel awesome. like i i what, what i'm saying is i feel like Nobody's crawled out from under, you know, the gleaming dumpster of girls. And I don't mean that girl sucks. I just mean, like, it's this huge thing that everybody wanted a piece of and everybody wanted to copy. And this thing that also kind of informed everybody that they were supposed to have a television show yeah. about their white girl problems and I feel mm -hmm. like so many so many shows I don't necessarily want to name names but you know the fucking vibes have <laughs> attempted to replicate the success and the tone of girls and it's still happening and they all kind of suck or they don't rock as much as girls did at its heyday I'm interested yeah. to see how the thing that pushes a new kind of mold into place i'd love that because i think there's the, the space that that sort of show occupies in pop culture is really important and kind of is like a compass whether even if the show's bad it's kind of like a good compass for like where are we at yeah 
So d- did this Anna Kendrick show do that or was it? It's kind of just like a New York romance. It's kind of probably more in the style of like a Sex in the City or, you know, it's just sort of like relationship to relationship. Anna Kendrick, she's got fun roommates. It's like, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of basic, but it's pretty inoffensive and, and nice. Um, it's that, I don't think it has, at least not yet, I've only watched two episodes, but I don't think it has the same characters as girls. Because there were episodes of girls that were like actually, were approaching transcendent like there was there was that episode with i think christopher abbott it was sort of like a take on the panic in needle park that was actually yeah. like an amazing app it was like a great tv um i've never seen girls so I, I have nothing to say we're both big fans of the the return in, in twin peaks obviously and i mean even that but obviously <laughs> occupies a very different space but um you know that was kind of the last thing we were excited about along with everybody else on the internet but you know it was it was something to look forward to. Oh, I, the return was so... It was nasty. It was so gnarly. It was so hard to watch. And I really loved how... I just felt totally railed by that show every time I watch it. That show was just like... That show was just like, baby girl, sit down. Don't do anything. Like... <laughs> That show, was daddy. that show was daddy. <laughs> oh. That show was daddy. <laughs> oh, it I, made me feel things that the television doesn't. Re- Wait, sorry, what were you going to say? Uh, I just, I really like that it wasn't gritty and real. I have to appreciate it. I feel like everything is gritty real now. And uh, The Return had way more of a kind of like comic book aspect to it that was really refreshing to me. I feel like that appetite for grittiness, for naturalism, for realism, I'm hoping it's kind of fading away and people I agree. are going to be more open to the surreal, to, you know, fantasy reality, dream logic. Like, I'm kind of secretly or like not so secretly kind of dipping my toes into the screenwriting game and like my number oh, one there we go. thing yeah, no, like, my, I mean, ugh, God, I, like, don't, you know, it's not like I'm, you know, <laughs> No, but, like, I, I just don't feel like I can justify, like, a gritty naturalistic thing. It's just, like, not the story I want to tell. Like, there's so much more, there, there, there's so much more to be communicated, even on television, where it almost might play less from yeah. portraying something the way it feels or the way it seems or... You know, a, an, an hallucination or a facsimile of the thing instead of just the thing. And I feel like that is maybe the passageway that a lot of these um, television makers and filmmakers can take to, you know, get out of, get out from under the shadow of things like girls. And, you know, w- what's another example of, you know, like, like high maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, high, high maintenance rocks. No, but... yeah, nothing against these shows. I, I like they're all like you know, I think they're all great as what they are. But it's I feel like it's kind of become a trend to do that thing, and uh, it's yeah, not it's, it's, it's not the only way to tell a story. Yeah, it's stop. You know, we don't need everyone to be gritty and real. There's also a lot like if you make your characters kind of caricatures, there's a lot you can tell story-wise with that, that you can't necessarily do with the, the gritty, realistic characters, you know? In the context of something more in this surreal or expressionistic or impressionistic tone, how do you endear, you know, a Jane and Joe beer can audience just tuning in? How do you bring them into the story without kind of providing a framework or a character that's very cut and dry that they can just project themselves onto. How, how can you like cut, how, no, how can it, you cut I, through? I think they can project themselves onto a non gritty real character. I think that's like what people don't realize. Maybe this is just me. I don't know. I, I like, I would much rather watch a caricature an unrealistic caricature of a character that I could relate to than some and a character character I could actually relate to. You know what I mean? 
but how would you relate to him? I guess it's largely projection and like maybe, you know, self-aggrandizing, but that's like what makes something, that is what can make something successful. It's like watching something that makes you feel better, you know? So... Like if if something is a really like souped up version of how you want to be relating to that instead of relating to someone who is actually just you. I think it's, it's something I, in, yeah, go for it. But I don't even mean in a, in a good way, just like, uh, I don't know. It's it's just like, take things that are relatable and like make them more interesting. Like dress them up. But how do you do that? How do you do it? Well, the thing that... The, well, it depends that, on the writer. The, the thing that the return does well is that like, it really engages with just like the medium of fiction. It's like... There, there are elements of that show that have a, a realism to them, but there, it, it titillates the, the spiritual transcendent self, which is, you know, at the end of the day, much more powerful than, you know, watching. Right. It also, like we and we've talked about this a bunch of times, but it, it has its own, it has its own language that isn't just like trying to use a TV show as this medium to just kind of convey easily explained uh ways of of relating and and story it's it has its own language you're you're like you're hearing you're reading the plot you're reading the uh kind of morality of it you're reading the interactions between the relationships between the characters from it like it's telling that all of that in its own way that isn't this it isn't kind of it isn't it, you can't sum it up in the same way you as you could, you know, a book or like a synopsis or whatever. It's just it's its own language that you can only get from watching it. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> it's so funny because um, the writing project, which is a television show that I've got on the sort of train right now that's furthest along, you know, closest ostensibly to being sold or getting produced. I pitch it, I pitched it in the room as Girls Meets Twin Peaks. Wow. <laughs> there we go. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's everything we're about. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think that... Um, Are the heads in the room going for that? They sure are. I've I've got I've got a big studio. That's sort of. awesome. I also feel because I also feel like things that are influenced by Twin Peaks, quote unquote, are kind of nine times out of ten influenced by like the wrong aspects of it. You know what I mean? Right. Like things that are like often described as Lynchian or Twin Peaksian are just like weird, like kind of a surreal element to it. It's like no, it's it's kind of more than that. Like, to me, something that would be truly, like, in the lineage of Peaks is, yeah, something that uses its own kind of language and, like, taps into, like, a really weird part of your subconscious. Right. I was about to circle back to what you were saying about language, and I think language relates to logic. I knew that I've written two of the episodes. Hopefully I will be able to write more when I sell it. I wanted there to be something early on in the series, even earlier than it is in the original Twin Peaks. I wanted something like the Red Room scene because the Red Room scene is when Twin Peaks really clicks into place for you and where you are sort of strapped in for the ride. And right. I feel like that scene changed television forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody said that. But I found a way to kind of break from the naturalistic, realistic progression of, like, character and plot. Like, I found a sort of passage to put in there that, like, basically lays a system of plumbing underneath the plot, underneath the narrative, underneath the characters. This kind of, not a portal, but, like, a story under the story. Like, right. yeah. for forces underneath the story that are then kind of breaking through that void and, like, affecting the characters in a very realistic or naturalistic way, you know, whether, you know, I, I'm playing with characters that 
don't exist, characters that, you know, don't, you know, like, that might have existed in the past without aging or, like, so, you know, I like, thing, you know, and right. n names and identities totally being in flux, another David Lynch thing, more from, like, Mulholland Drive or even... I think that even just sticking... There, there, there has to be a force operating parallel to, you know, right? Yeah, the A storyline or even the B storyline that plays by its own rules and ultimately has supremacy over the story that we're, I think, used to deferring to as viewers. Totally. Um, yeah, I think that's that's exactly what I'm saying. I think that's kind of the crucial element to like what makes Twin Peaks so, especially the return, uh, so effective uh, that people kind of miss. It's like, especially in kind of the constant like interpretation conversation around Lynch in general, but Twin Peaks especially. Yeah, that stuff's all fun if you're a fan. Like I, I'll totally engage with it just because it's fun. But um, it's it's also like kind of missing the point. It's like what you're saying. There's like something else that's running beneath the storylines that that that's really what's hitting you. Like that's kind of the that's kind of the relatable aspect to it, right? It's this this kind of like encroaching thing that you can feel going underneath the story. Like that ultimately, even though it's presented in a surreal way, is actually pretty is actually pretty relatable. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it like actually is like how I feel <laughs> like in life. Well, I think the key is tying it into something primal that is universal and universally felt. And I think that the original Twin Peaks season one and two was so revolutionary and so smart and so incisive in its connection of that other world that secret logic that dreamscape the black lodge tying that into this narrative of trauma and of domestic abuse and sexual violence as it related to laura palmer and the person who was abusing her and assaulting her i might have just let fly a spoiler alert sorry <laughs> i mean i don't expect anybody listening to this pod to like not know that yeah spoiler. exactly anyway the fact that all that jazz is tied to this, like, primal, visceral, even domestic thing is what plants that kind of mysterious woo-woo thing, it, it plants it right into your house, into your television, into your living room, into your family and right. friends. And that's what, like, I'm oh, sorry, I keep going. Well, I think that's the thing that I struggled with a little bit in The Return because there was a lot of woo-woo and I wasn't totally sure, I, like, I wasn't sure how that woo-woo was relating but I, I i there was no connection or not as much of a connection to something primal for me in that narrative and huh. if there were if there was i missed it <laughs> uh well i i totally agree with you and it's funny because i i felt it in the return probably almost more than the original i've also seen it like over 20 times now so there's that but <laughs> there you, you watch the return 20 times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually just finished rewatching. Uh that's not, a, that's not exaggeration either. He's serious. And and I that's that's just that's just watching the whole thing. Like I've watched certain episodes more than that. But uh, well actually both of us uh here at the Ion Pack went to the MoMA marathon screening. Uh we watched all 18 hours over 2 days. That was sick. I would I could have I could have easily done that twice in a row we're revealing our true nerddom yeah this is this is, the this one, is one of the yeah this is one about. of the only things that we'll actually get nerdy about um it's one of the only <laughs> things we actually like uh yeah i was gonna say that i think that that like subconscious mythology that that guides narrative is something i've i've really only seen in few other places like i would say the peach movies have that and there are trace elements of it in mad men but it's, it's really difficult to find and the only common thread that i can really see between them is just that the creator or the writer or the director kind of seems to themselves be a sort of transcendental thinker and being like i don't even know if they would be able to have the conversation 
about what the, what they need that we're having right now. It's it's almost exactly like okay. Here, this is kind of what I was trying to say. I feel like I'm I'm formulating my thoughts a little better now. So, it like Twin Peaks is more kind of in a way an allegory, right? But it's like way different because I really don't normally don't like things that are purely allegorical and Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks does it in a way where it's not like everything doesn't mean a, a like everything that represents something quote unquote in the allegory doesn't have a concrete thing that it's representing, right? It's kind of like, like all of these themes that you're talking about, you know, sexual abuse and, and trauma and, and et cetera, et cetera. And all the like dark things festering underneath it. That's all just kind of expressed in this, in this really just existential way of it's kind of like the, the feeling of the, the kind of underworld of it, the underbelly that's kind of hiding beneath the, the storyline you understand it, but there's not a way to explain it. That's what I was saying about it being its own language. It's just like what it's representing is just this kind of weird behind the scenes, like creeping that you can't really put to words, but it's being told to you in its own language. See what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that it also, it has that like quality of like when you go to see like a blockbuster movie that might have violence or, or sex or whatever, there's something about uh, the physical violence and, you know, taboo themes of like incest or, you know, se sexual abuse or whatever that it, th those are the moment the moments that it breaks out of allegory and, and fantasy and just focuses on you know the, the horror of stuff like that it's all on the surface and it's it's that much scarier and more affecting because uh it's it's all right there and, as opposed to just like your your average you know blockbuster or whatever that you might see in a movie theater where things are, are stylized in a way to just be like this is a movie this is this is violence. This is fucked up sex. In 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 Lynch, it's sort of like no, it's actually really fucking scary when this shit happens. Yeah, and and I think Lynch speaks to the transformative capacity for these intense, life changing, life or death, traumatic, violent experiences. His films and Twin Peaks are a testament to the way that those instances in somebody's life can open up a portal into yeah. something transcendent and deep and um, not of this world. The way that this, like, you know, I think he understands the banality of evil. It's not enough to merely concede to the evil that happens the evil that men do, if you will, just, you know, showing that A to B isn't necessarily communicating the full depth. And I feel like that's, you know, Lynch's fundamentally empathetic offering, even if I feel like that's often misconstrued as an exploitative right. approach. Yeah, I actually think there's immense empathy there. I agree, because it's just like, just, I just think his way of doing it is not like, yeah, trying to make sense of it or writing it into some kind of triumph over it. Uh, it's it's just kind of like presenting it as it is. It's this, this weird kind of creeping thing that's just lurking under the story. Have you ever seen um, The Naked Kiss, Samuel Fuller? Yes. I have not. I just watched it um, as research for something that I started writing and um it feels like kind of the key to pretty much everything that lynch made between like i don't know oh, this movie, and yeah. 96 like i mean maybe that's to overstate it wait sorry what did you say oh no i just i just am looking it up i yeah i had this on a list of like noirs that i wanted to watch but i think um you know there are surreal elements and it even has you know, this brothel that's across the river from a small town where all of these girls are kind of dressed up in showgirl outfits. Like, he definitely took a bunch of literal things from this film and put them in Twin Peaks. But I think that the more um, 
fundamental gesture that I can see in Lynch's work that you can find in this film is sort of that simplicity that you were talking about. The, in you know, the direction for kind of sincere emotion, simplistic emotion, sincere um, reaction within the context of something surreal or melodramatic. Um, I mean, obviously, there is so much melodrama in Twin Peaks, but I think something about the way he directs it makes it feel right logical well, and well, like the you know like the, there's no way that um laura palmer's mother wouldn't take the news of her daughter's death that way with that shriek and you know the yeah I, dang, like, like it, it seems so matter of fact but that's kind of that's like what i'm saying i feel like a lot of allegorical stuff kind of loses uh that energy from its characters uh kind of to it, like trying to serve the story or the message is trying to to tell and allude to something allegorical will will sacrifice that kind of uh human level the human aspect of its characters and i think that's the kind of like pop level that makes twin peaks work so much better than everything else that's really tried to do it is because ultimately even though he's kind of saying and conveying all this stuff, it's just like you like you just still just like love these characters in the world and like their melodrama actually kind of means something to you, you know? Right, and I think that melodrama in the con, you know, let's just take Laura's death as a microcosm in the pilot. The way that everybody's reaction to her death is so extreme, actually in a weird way, paints a very clear picture for the audience of somebody that they have never met and haven't seen in action, haven't seen in life. And it makes you really care about, you know, capital T, the dead girl, in a way that you don't usually get because she's just this abstract sort of like statistic, you know, a dead body. I feel like those broad dramatic strokes that he paints, David Lynch, in that pilot, it kind of, tar you know, you, you don't know whether to laugh or cry, but you're certainly having to sit in a very intensive way with what this girl meant to other people. Even if it seems kind of bonkers, you get a sense of it. And it actually serves, you know, that melodrama serves kind of a pragmatic purpose at the end. It's weird. Yeah, exactly. You also, like really see the kind of two sides of her and see how this uh kind of beautiful good girl is getting kind of pulled down this hole uh by you know kind of abstract evil forces like you can really feel the kind of pull between the two sides of her and you can like see how she was kind of corrupted and how so many other things in the town are corrupted and being kind of pulled under by these just kind of like I keep saying, creeping feelings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you really like feel your like you. I I even watching it the first time like really felt myself kind of getting pulled down with the characters. But I I, I still want to challenge you on the return a little bit. Like if the original sin of Twin Peaks, the original is the abuse and violation of an innocent young girl i feel like the original sin of twin peaks the return like goes back to the atom bomb and i feel like that's harder to it's harder to I, relate to it's hard it's it's harder to, so yeah what it's a very alienating narrative and i think it probably has much more to do with like things that are even more invisible and things that lynch deals with now like aging and the problem of communication right. the problem of actual emotional intimacy uh, but i'm glad you brought up sam fuller like naked kiss and shock corridor because like i think the most refreshing thing to me about the return is that it just 
and Lynch in general is that like he's he clearly hasn't watched many new pieces of media in like the past <laughs> few decades. Like he really is inspired by that like sixties era of oh, well, melodrama, yeah. which I think is part of his strength, and that's part of why we can't get you know that same feeling from from new projects or you know TV shows or movies that try to emulate Lynch because. The reference points are all within the past like five years where we like recycle things that we just saw on Netflix rather than you know, right. we're just not as old we're just not as old. Well, I don't know. I think um what you were saying, like it the thing about the atom bomb being less kind of relatable, yeah, that's definitely I that's true. But um I don't know. What I took that to mean is just kind of like uh like he's talking about when I don't know, like the whole radio station thing and everything I feel like he's kind of just talking about the kind of uh, like ideas and, and fear and war and just the stuff like when all these kind of current events started to seep into the zeitgeist through kind of media and entertainment and TV that's kind of like when uh, these it's kind of like paranoid or, or uh, darker ideas started to just seep into people's everyday lives via media, whether it be radio or entertainment or news or whatever. And that kind of like opened everyone up to being kind of like you were saying, like have this portal open, kind of being sucked down into this uh, creeping underside thing. Uh, that's kind of what I took that to mean. I don't know if that's the best way to explain it, but you see what I'm saying? Well, I think I hit my limit here as somebody who came into the film world, the world of story, the world of, you know, think basically thinking about anything with a mise-en-scene, a, a theme, you know, any, I come to all of this as an actor and not just that, I come as somebody who had a very kind of practical A to B to C acting training where, you know, I did the Stanislavski stuff where, you know, you learn your objectives and you figure out, you know, a backstory for your character and you have to, like, find a primal, you know, topical way in, you know, using a mix of imagination and your own experience in order to bring that sort of transcendent, in-the-moment, guttural, real edge to your artistic output as an actor. And so as much as I like to kind of go into that woo-woo, you know, bong-rip, galaxy brain place, <laughs> as an artist, I think that there's a little part of me that has trouble kind of getting out of, you know, this admittedly kind of like Western traditionalist thing where like, I need at least a little branch to grab onto right. that I can, you know, feel, you know, deep down in my butt, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, and, and I pre like, there, there's so much kind of like formal challenge and flamboyance within Twin Peaks, the return, but I, I struggled to find that branch and I felt Lynch kind of laughing at me that I was even looking for that branch. And then I was kind of like, haha, like I'm a seeker of branches. Oh my God, what's wrong with me? And then I was like, damn, thank you, Uncle Lynch. I would never have even thought about this if it weren't for Twin Peaks The Return. I'm just gonna sit here for another 16 hours and watch it. And I was and I was happy to do it, you know? Right. Well, I don't know. It is like an Eastern, it is an Eastern thing. Like it does feel pretty anti-Western. I, I think you, like, I don't know. I, I also think it's, it's like, I feel like it's, like, less, I feel it's simpler than people give it credit for. I think it's kind of, like, if you, like, for me, at least, if you tap into, uh, I don't know, just this kind of, like, the kind of, like, low-key existential, like, murky dread that everyone has, we all have, you can kind of start to relate to it. It's like yeah. it's like kind of taking your yourself out of the equation and just like think of you at your purest sense and like what 
existentially feels threatening. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think what Hari's saying is really valuable, though, about, like, operating from an actor's place. No, totally. And, and needing that sort of relatability, and it does make me excited to see what you're writing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a way, the things that I'm writing about are abstract and are, I think, you know, more kind of topical, more cultural. It's so funny because I, I mean, I don't want to say too much about this TV show, but something that I will say is that I started writing it in 2017 and the journey from, um, you know, writing the first page to going out to directors took all the way to now. And I was writing, you know, this story about, three women and like the culture industry and like you know whether it's Hollywood or media or the art world like it's all kind of in there and you know I was kind of writing like a social satire but trying to find a way to make it more than just like haha everything sucks so i've i turned it into a period piece in two that like set in 2017 because who knows when this will actually go into production right. um so i'm i'm now like having this thing where like i'm looking backward just over my shoulder and i almost feel like that gives me permission to you know, kind of blow up certain things and, like, shrink certain things because everybody remembers, but nobody remembers what that year was like. So it sort of gives you permission to kind of muck around a little bit. Yeah, what was good know. with 2017? Yeah, without revealing too much, what what are you going to... What, what do you like to blow up about 2017? Well, so much flew in 2017 that, like is almost unimaginable right now as being able to fly. Like, 2017 was right when Me Too was kind of starting to crest. And now, you know, we not only have one, but two presidential candidates who are rapists. And, like, you know, the liberal establishment of women have fully kind of thrown their heft behind somebody with like a major sexual assault case like it, it seems so unfathomable right now that like elizabeth warren would be defending joe biden when in like 2017 it was like you know new york magazine weinstein vibes it just like yeah it doesn't seem that far away but it there was something different going on and um I also think that, you know, we've recently seen um, kind of aspects of, like, the media bubble and, like, what will kind of, like, fly in that regard. Like, ugh, I don't want to give away <laughs> too much. It's, you know, I, I, I was talking to um, my friend Devin, Devin Diaz, who's a consulting producer on the show, um, and we were talking about... Um, you know, we, we were looking back on the last couple of years of sort of like liberal feminist journalism in the way that like in 2017, like if you were transsexual, like you could get an essay published pretty much anywhere you wanted <laughs> under like, you know, you could write about anything and broadly would give you $500 and publish you. It, it, like, you could be like, I'm transsexual and I make toast every morning. And they'd be like, yes, tell us about your experience. Like, that that was kind of the vibe in 2017. Right. And I was, and it was, it was actually Devin's idea to set it, to, to turn it into not something that's set in the present, but to set it in the year that it was written. And I was kind of, I wasn't arguing with her. I just, like, it wasn't my idea. If that wasn't my idea, so I was playing devil's advocate and kind of, like, comparing or contrasting. And, like, I... You know, sh she's like, girl, like, that shit doesn't fly anymore. And I'm like, well, I don't know. And I, like, talked about, you know, some trans writers that I knew who were, like, 
on staff at like a certain big media company I'm like the girls are still publishing essays about the trans experience like maybe there aren't as many of them but like you know there are girls on staff who like you know write about this stuff all the time it's still alive and well and then literally like days after I made that argument you know said unnamed media company made all of these cuts and I follow those two girls on Twitter and they both got let down they both got let off laid off Oh, my God, let down. They got let down. They got laid off. <laughs> they were let down. And, and it was just like, okay, wow. Like, we are not in 2017 anymore. We are not in identity utopia. We are not. Like, something else is happening. And um, I, I, I feel kind of impelled to, like, look back at that moment where everything went and kind of to interrogate you know, not just why everything went, but, like, how did that anything-goes mentality, how did it affect and sort of produce the behavior of, you know, the girls, boys, and people that were, you know, kind of let loose, you know, for that anything-goes thing, you know? In this case that I'm talking about, like, how how were the trans dolls really acting, and, like, what were they doing when the institutions just like opened up the opened up the floodgates and like suddenly everybody had an invitation to the party apropos of nothing other than you know maybe the most banal thing about them right. does that make sense um yeah so but, so are you are you saying that you like are but I can't are you saying are you like feeling pessimistic about 2017 like you think it was all kind of for show and no one actually cared about people's voices i think she's saying that the people were lost in the sauce oh well (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm you know i i don't want to say it's a cut and dry pessimistic view i just think that looking at where things are now and what has changed and what hasn't changed Looking at right now, as opposed to three years ago, and really thinking critically and deeply about, like, you know, the seeds that were allegedly being sown three years ago to, you know, fortify a greater, more inclusive tomorrow. What has that really done for... Right. Well, because I feel, I don't know, I feel like a lot of it was maybe semi-empty gestures so that kind of media companies could get brownie points for including uh you know marginalized writers but then they didn't actually really do anything or actually prop them up in any way they just published the article to get brownie points right and like that's that's a very i mean that's a critique it's a valid critique it's a critique i've been making for a while but in terms of cinema like or you know a television show or something you know a a story involving characters i'm much more interested in how those dynamics affected the psychology of right you know the people who were being given the olive branch and you know it's not just this narrative of like hooray inclusion or like you know girls moving up in the world it's like i'm i'm ready to see the other side of it and kind of make this sort of challenging potentially dangerous little hypothesis of um you know i see what you're doing (laughs) yeah the women are in power now the trans women are in power now you know they're in power now and they're worse than the men (laughs) they're worse (laughs) than the cis women like they're worse because they're this is gonna be sick yeah (laughs) like (laughs) um oh this is so sick yeah, like, it, it's it's something that I, I just want to kind of get into the nooks and crannies of those intimate things that I guess we're just not allowed to speak on or say. And, like, I don't have, like, an identitarian agenda. I just, like, know what I'm uniquely equipped. I know which stories I'm uniquely equipped to tell. Right, exactly. And which stories yeah. I'm uniquely equipped to get made. And, like, I've been very intentional about kind of the work that I take on that other people write. And I feel like... I'm safe, you know, it's like I've played the trans girl who dies twice in, you know, a five-year span of time. Or, 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 you know, barely doesn't die. You know, maybe she gets saved. But, you know, 
a trans girl who gets her shit fucked up, I've already done, like, I've done that twice already, so I'm like, if I'm gonna continue moving forward with this context, which, like, I can't help, but... Right. I would like to take it into my own hands and, um, you know, put my own little kiss on it. Yeah. Write a different story. Big shots to your project. Yeah, big shots. Um... Thing. Well, yeah, but that's that's like I feel like that's an important uh, distinction that you made. Like, what did you say? I don't have an identitarian. What did you say? How did you word an it? An identitarian agenda or something like that. Right. I, I yeah, I feel like that's a difference that isn't like really thought about. Like identitarian agenda versus like still like writing from your identity. You know what I mean? Like write what you know. It's a difference, and it's important to write right. what you know. And, like, from that perspective, it doesn't necessarily mean you have, like, you know, this whole, like, kind of what I was saying about an allegory. It's not like you have this, like, kind of concrete thing you're trying to say. You're just, like, writing from your perspective because your perspective is what you know. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think cinema is a really exciting and, for me, healthy way to... Uh, ooh... What's the opposite of sublimate? What's the word when a gas becomes a solid? Uh, oh. What? We should, we should know as, as scientists. But... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that word is, I feel like screenwriting allows me to... I actually didn't know this. Deposition. Deposition? That's gas into a solid. No, gas becomes a solid is desublimation. I'm Wait, getting deposition, deposition. I'm getting desublimation. I feel what? all right. So let let desublimation. I'm just gonna go with that one. Okay. Sorry, yeah. other ion packer. I feel like <laughs> screenwriting um, allows me to desublimate the things in my life that feel scary and feel chimerical and feel, you know, Lynchian in that mooky, gooky underworld way. It, it allows me to put it on paper and turn it into something that I can share with people, not only to make them understand, but also to make myself understand. Oh God, no. that sounds so silly. No, 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 no. Like, that's I, what it's about. That's, kind of, that's yeah, exactly. It's, it's right. It's like, it's not, I see what you're saying, right? It's like not writing to convey this concrete idea. It's just like, I don't know. I, I'm a human and I am an identity and I have lived a, like I have these life experiences and I just need to like interpret it in some way. It doesn't necessarily have this kind of concrete explanation. It's just kind of like becomes this uh, kind of murk of your experience. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. And, and, and I think that... Yeah. No, you go. You go. No, you go. Well, I, I think that's, I, I, what I'm saying is I think that's like a really cool and important perspective that gets lost in a post-Black Mirror world of everything having like a, an objective kind of goal of its story. See what I'm saying? Right. Yes. And, and that, that's what I've been trying to say this entire time, and that's the best way to describe it. Like, just kind of getting the kind of existential goo that comes out of your experience as a person you know whatever identity you are just you as a person like the what comes out of that like just write that instead of writing this kind of with this objective goal at the end of the story and and allow it to be gooey definitely. allow it to be as existential definitely I, gooey yeah. is good that's what pe people are afraid to be gooey but it's it's good Get gooey, Packers. <laughs> you know what else happened in 2017? What? Twin, what Pe Twin Peaks The Return. Right. I, that was my first oh thought. My oh my god. Oh my god. Yes, so, I remember so it's, that. It's a great year for a center. True. That was a weird year for me. It's a weird year for everybody. Yeah. 2017 is when I shot Assassination Nation, I think think yeah uh-huh wow. it, it was then and then um the ion pack didn't even yeah. exist 
That was before we were born. We were still toiling in obscurity back then. <laughs> we were a private account amongst friends from a set. <laughs> Why is it called the Ion Pack? Wow. Wait. You're the yeah. first person to ever ask. We, yeah, we literally talk about this all the time. In the two years that it's existed, no one has ever asked. Or why it's Are you serious? No, we literally talk about this all the time. Like, like, dude, why has no one ever asked us what, what it means? You, literally, I'm like, well, you know, one day it's going to happen. What is the I think, I think we'll take the lynch stance and just not speak on yeah, it. Yeah, like, you know, let it hit you existentially. <laughs> I think it, it, it might hit you for whatever reason it hits you, and that's, that's good. Ions are positively charged particles, right? They are. Hmm. So, you know, you're two positively charged particles. Did you feel Just... positively charged in this conversation? I absolutely did. So did we. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you for doing this. Wait, how, lo how long have you been following Ion? I've been following Ion... I, okay, so I follow all my meme accounts from my Finsta. I'm now right. going to claim the Ion officially on my main account. Wow. I'm going to yeah. follow on main. You're going to be the only meme account that I follow on my... Do I? No, I think, yeah, you'd probably be the only one. Um, that was the goal. I I, if you've only been around for two years, I think I've been following for like at least a year and a half, potentially longer. Oh man, amazing. Huge head. Yeah. No, I'm I'm a total head and, and I think that, you know, I, I had my little kind of tragic spell where I like left New York and moved to LA and I think, you know, Ion just made me feel really close to, you know. Dime Square and the Metrograph and all those <laughs> lovely things I miss. Are you gonna um, come back? Yeah, no, I, I moved back in February, so oh, you're, I'm, you're here. I'm back, so, you know, maybe I'll see you around. Let's hit commissary later. <laughs> <laughs> Let's break in. Yeah, we should work on Late some, at the we should work on some projects this summer. <laughs> <laughs> like what? I, I mean, I don't know, you're creative, we're creatives, we always have projects. Doesn't matter what they are. Holla at me. This is an unholy alliance. <laughs> Thank you, Hari. Thank you so much. Love you, Hari. Love you. Talk to you later. The Ion Pack podcast is so much better than doing Red Scare. I love the fucking Ion Pack.